Testosterone deficiency syndrome can occur as men age. The lack of sufficient testosterone in the system can have health consequences and affect multiple organ systems. However, diagnosis and management is controversial and creates confusion and reluctance among healthcare practitioners. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today we're speaking with Dr. Alvaro Morales, a urologist and professor emeritus at Queen's University School of Medicine in Kingston, Ontario. Dr. Morales and a team of experts have published an evidence-based guideline in the CMAJ for the management of testosterone deficiency syndrome in men. Dr. Morales, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's a pleasure Tell us briefly, you know, we're, we're talking about your clinical practice guideline on managing testosterone deficiency in men. Um, who made up the multidisciplinary team of experts who, who worked with you to uh, author this guideline? Well, what makes the uniqueness of the guideline is uh, the fact that it's uh, multidisciplinary in nature. Uh, the task force uh, included family physicians, endocrinologists, urologists, clinical biochemists, epidemiologists, and pharmacists. It's a, it's a large group, and each uh, co-author was selected on the basis of a recognized interest and expertise in uh, the field of their specialties. So with this multidisciplinary guideline, who were you aiming it for? The audience of the guideline is equally wide and varied, and it includes primary care physicians, internal medicine subspecialties such as endocrinology and geriatrics, and of course, urologists. Um, the guideline uh, would, should also be of interest to psychiatrists, nurse practitioners, clinical biochemists, and at the dispensing end, the pharmacists. But the main constituency will be men at and beyond middle age when the manifestations of testosterone deficiency are most prevalent. Ultimately, the purpose of the guideline is to provide a suitable management to men with manifestations of uh, testosterone deficiency. So who would you put in the middle-aged camp? Like what would be the, the lowest age that you'd think this would apply to? Well, it is very varied and probably will be men uh, over the age of 45. Of course, testosterone deficiency can occur at any age, but we are dealing mostly with adult men in which there is a decrease in testicular function, and that will appear at the early stages in the mid to late 40s. I think it'll depress some 45-year-olds to discover their middle age. Um, now, there's a lot of controversy around testosterone deficiency syndrome. Can you tell us what it is and why there is so much controversy around it? Well, um, I, I think I would like to start by defining what the condition is. Um, first of all, testosterone deficiency is a syndrome uh, that has been known by many names. And the controversy stands even with the names. Many uh, inappropriate names have used anything ranging from the male menopause to the andropause to the more acceptable ones like late onset hypogonadism or testosterone deficiency. Now, regardless of how you call uh, the syndrome, it will require a number of clinical manifestations that are associated with testosterone deficiency. 
And in addition to the manifestations, and I want to emphasize this, it is very important that we have a laboratory confirmation that the testosterone levels are indeed low. There are a number of reasons for the controversy, the use of gonadal hormones, and once around the abuse of hormones for performance enhancing, but of course we are not dealing with this issue here. But it contributes to the suspicion and disagreement that have been generated on the uh, management of testosterone deficiency. We should remember that this syndrome has been controversial from the beginning, and from the beginning I mean since the synthesis of testosterone over 70 years ago, and even before, uh, about 100 years ago, there was there were heated debates on the science of testicular transplants and testicular extracts. And the quackery of those treatments still resonate to these days. We see then mentioned in publications, and many people believe that this is just quackery. Um, however, I digress, and let me come back to the current controversies. Part of the problem is that the manifestations of uh, testosterone deficiency are very subtle and non-specific, such as sexual dysfunction, fatigue, depression, and can be affected by a number of factors, such as the environment, age, medications, comorbidities, um, which are not uncommon in this age group of men over the age of 45. To compound the difficulties, the physical examination is equally non-specific. Uh, we talk about gonadal atrophy, decreasing facial and public hair. Uh, but these appear only in the most severe and longer-lasting cases. However, I want to emphasize that the results of the history and physical could at least make a presumptive diagnosis. And there are a number of simple screening questionnaires that are uh, easily available, but they are not very good either because also they are very sensitive. They lack specificity, and I have personally used them mostly as icebreakers to facilitate the patient uh, answering some of the questions when they see in a piece of paper. It's then for them to mark it with the next and then we can go into more details. To reach the diagnosis, as I mentioned before, the determination of uh, serum testosterone is mandatory. And the problem here is that there are several methodologies of variable accuracy. So the vagueness in the history of physical examination to, together with the laboratory variables in some instances, they do not make life easy for a physician to reach a clear-cut diagnosis. And uh, finally, the use of hormone replacement, both in women and men, have been a topic of much controversy over the years, as I'm sure you are aware. For, for women, the issue seems to have been settled with the results of the Women's Health Initiative, but even after such a large and supposedly conclusive study, the controversy persists. And here, allow me to emphasize, and I really want to make this clear, that I think it's a big mistake trying to extrapolate the experience of hormone therapy for the menopause in women to the management of testosterone deficiency in men.
Why is that? The two conditions are uh, very different. The only similarity is that this, they appear as a result of uh, advancing age. Uh, the menopause is um, an unavoidable event. It will be surprising to find a woman at the age of 65 still having menstrual periods. What uh, in men, the testosterone deficiency, although it occurs with age, is not an invaluable thing. The uh, testosterone deficiency is not universal. There is a decline in testosterone production, which is very common, but I and many physicians have seen men in their 80s with fairly normal levels of testosterone and no manifestations of testosterone deficiency whatsoever. And the two hormones that have been used for replacement therapy and uh, one group of hormones for the menopause are quite different from the use of testosterone and the physiological effects. So given all this controversy, can you tell us a little bit about why your group thought a clinical practice guideline was needed? Was it just because of the controversy or were there other reasons? Well, the controversy, of course, was a prime mover uh, for the development of the guideline because there's so much confusion out there. However, our first step was to perform a, a broad survey of Canadian practicing physicians as part of a needs assessment. And there were a number of surprises here. The results suggested that many Canadian practitioners were uncomfortable dealing with testosterone deficiency. Um, another portion of the survey was a group of multiple choice questions that were uh, included in the questionnaire to determine the depth of knowledge uh, by the respondents. The answers uh, that we found were disparate and revealed that there is a significant amount of confusion and gaps in the management of this condition. And this was not surprising at all. If uh, people like myself who have been interested for many years in this issue sometimes get very confused with the amount of uh, literature that is contradictory, I'm not surprised that our colleagues express the same problems. As we discussed, um, there are important differences of opinion in the management of uh, TDS, ranging from the diagnostic test to the treatment modalities. The literature is full of papers expressing different views that sometimes are completely opposite and contradictory. It is then very difficult for a clinician to assess such a cacophony of opinions. And for these reasons, the Canadian Mental Health Foundation felt that there is a need for a Canadian guideline in the management of uh, TDS and created the task force to develop one. Currently, there are American and European guidelines which were written by endocrinologists or urologists and for endocrinologists uh, or urologists. Neither of those guidelines deal with the particulars of the Canadian environment. And as I mentioned, uh, our document addresses not only the Canadian situation, but because it is multidisciplinary, it is designed for a wide audience of health professionals dealing with the health issues of adult men. So in that way, we are quite unique. 
Now, we've talked a little bit already about the diagnosis of the syndrome. You mentioned that history and physical sort of provide some clues. You can use quizzes, but they're not very good. Um, But you really have to measure testosterone. What kind of testosterone test do you recommend? Because there sort of are a lot, uh, a number of them out there. Let me go back and emphasize that I think we need four components. One, as I mentioned, is the uh, clinical picture that is compatible with the manifestations of testosterone deficiency. Second, ideally we should have a physical examination that shows at least some of the changes that are induced uh, by low testosterone, although they may be so subtle that they are not easy to detect. Number three, we need a laboratory test, and we were very clear in the uh, document indicating that serum total testosterone should be the initial test, and more complicated tests should be used only later on if there there are difficulties in the diagnosis. And uh, finally, there is a component that uh, it has been said that our response to treatment represents the incontrovertible evidence uh, of the diagnosis. I happen to agree with this belief, uh, so the evidence for it is, is rather weak. How many months should clinicians sort of wait before they could sort of say, yes, this patient has responded or hasn't responded? Well, this is a very good question. Uh, it depends on what are the m- main manifestations. We used to believe that uh, sexual manifestations are fairly common and they tend to respond within the first three months of treatment. There is new evidence showing that it may take longer, six to 12 months. Uh, for other ones, like decreasing uh, muscle mass, it may take even longer uh, one to two years may be necessary of continuous treatment. So I would say that less than three to six months uh, is too short a period to assess if there have been a benefit of therapy. So let's say I have a patient that comes in with appropriate symptoms. I've done a physical. There are some subtle but clearly present signs um, connected with testosterone deficiency. I've done the test shows the levels low, what would be my next step? How should I go about treating this patient? First of all, and of course, we have to look, are there any modifiable factors? It has been said that diet and exercise is very important. And indeed, there is evidence that particularly in the obese patient, if you are able to induce a significant reduction in weight and patient has has, uh, practices, exercise, and physical activity, the levels of testosterone may increase. And this is known to happen. But obviously, if the uh, testosterone deficiency is very severe, it's doubtful that by itself, these uh, simple measures will uh, correct the problem. You also have to make sure that the patient is not taking medications that may induce a decrease in testosterone production, some of the antihypertensive and anti yeah antihypertensive medications sometimes uh, interferes with testosterone production now uh, not all men are candidates for treatment, and some because there are specific contraindications, and we may discuss this later on. 
others because of the severity of the manifestations don't warrant it. You know, somebody may say, well, I I don't feel that I'm as good as sports as I used to be, but I can live with it. So that's not sufficient reason to give testosterone. And here I want to emphasize a very important point. If a patient, if your patient is not prepared to participate in a schedule of monitoring after you start him on treatment, I don't think he should be considered either because these are the patients who are going to run into troubles later on. But uh, the choice of treatment has to be a decision between you and your patient. There are many factors, uh, many factors that come into play here. We recommend selecting a treatment based on the availability of the product. There are some that are, for instance, available in Europe, but not in Canada, and others that are available uh, south of the border, but not here. Uh, cost can be an important factor for some patients, and there are the individual preferences. In Canada, we have oral, testosterone, transdermal gels, and we have injectable products. This will require a thorough discussion between you and, and, and your patient, and each man will have different preference based on personal circumstances. I have had patients who, surprisingly, they like the injectables, and they are able to administer it themselves, or they have their wives doing it for, uh, for them. So it is very valuable, and you really have to give them the, the choice after a very good, thorough discussion. In your guideline, you go into additional details for some some special groups, and some of them. One of them is uh, men with stable cardiovascular disease, and also surprisingly, men with prostate cancer. Um, can you tell us a little bit why you focused on those two groups in particular, and and what kind of recommendations you've made for this these groups? This is um, <laughs> probably the two most controversial issues in the uh, treatment of testosterone deficiency and probably the ones that were physician uh, most frequently. Uh, there are many colleagues that said, look, I don't want to get into trouble. I don't know of anybody who has died of low testosterone, so I'd rather, I'd rather ignore this and forget about this. And I completely understand the, the reasons for the discomfort of uh, many colleagues and say there are so much controversy about these two issues that I don't want to deal with them. So I would suggest if you don't want to deal with them, refer them to somebody who may be um, interested in dealing with the patient. But let me, let me deal first with the cardiovascular issues. The controversy started about four years ago. There was a paper that was published in a very reputable uh, journal and this paper suggested that the administration of testosterone was associated with an increasing uh, cardiovascular adverse events. Uh, the paper was uh, forcefully criticized because the study was retrospective. It included a very elderly population. Most of the men were close to 80 years old. And above all, it was not designed, designed to assess a cardiovascular event. Um, the other problem uh, was that the majority of the cardiovascular events occur in men who have reached abnormally high levels of testosterone. Um, this uh, has been associated for many years 
with a significant increase in hematocrit and hemoglobin and uh, non-factor throm- uh, thromboembolism. So there was little wonder that the study had to be aborted. Despite the criticisms, this paper was widely publicized, and uh, two years later, there was a second and even more problematic uh, retrospective study that it was also published in a very well-recognized medical journal. And this paper uh, reported an increase in mortality from cardiovascular events in men receiving testosterone. Um, This was a very strange publication. The study was so flawed that it was accompanied by an editorial pointing at the shortcomings, and it was followed by an international call for its retraction. There were many factors that were mentioned by people who criticized it. Regardless, these uh, two papers created an enormous brouhaha with involvement of experts from all walks of life. And making the long story short, the end result is that the FDA and Health Canada have added several warnings about the risk of vein thrombosis in all testosterone-approved products. Uh, The Foundation Task Force took a very careful look at the evidence. Of course, we were particularly concerned about this, and we looked at several meta-analyses, and we found that there really was not uh, support for a causal relationship between testosterone treatment and cardiovascular events. So based on the evidence, we have suggested that men with testosterone deficiency and stable cardiovascular disease, and I want to emphasize the stable cardiovascular disease, are potential candidates for testosterone treatment as long as there have been a thorough discussion between the potential risk and benefits, again, between the physician and the patient. You also ask about prostate cancer. Uh, the situation here is not as complicated. And let me start by saying that patients with metastatic prostate cancer are not candidates for testosterone treatment, period. It is an absolute contraindication. The questions uh, have appeared, what about patients who have been treated successfully for prostate cancer and develop testosterone deficiency because this is the age group in which both of these happen, prostate cancer and testosterone deficiency. These patients can be treated, and the guideline emphasizes that they can be treated, but they will require, uh, of course, expert monitoring. And if the patients are not going to come for frequent visits as the physician requires, then they should not be treated. But there remains a third group, is the men with localized prostate cancer that has not been treated. And there is a great deal of controversy about this. Uh, The paradigms for these men are shifting, but the evidence still too meager is still too early to to make any firm recommendations. So perhaps the best approach for these men is to refer them to an expert in the field that will feel uh, comfortable in dealing with them. When I'm hearing you discuss this, a clear message that's coming out for me is that a lot of this has to do with conversations with your patient, getting to know 
how much this is, you know, you've, let's say you've made the diagnosis, but how much are the symptoms bothering them? How much do they want treatment? Um, what are the risks and benefits of treatment? So it's really all about conversations with our patients. You are absolutely right. The communication is absolutely essential. You know, anything from the beginning point, you take the history and physical, there are so many factors that may be giving you symptoms that are compatible with testosterone deficiency, but they may be due to other causes that have nothing to do with the low testosterone. You have to explain to the patient, for instance, we advocate that if you document a low testosterone, particularly if it is borderline, that a second test will be necessary and even a third one to confirm this. And even the third one may still be not diagnostic and you may require a different kind of testing or a more elaborate endocrinological assessment. The patient has to be aware of why are you doing so many tests and how can you reach diagnosis just by one, one blood test. And even after you have reached the diagnosis, as we discussed, the involvement of the patient in choosing the best medication for him is very important. The same thing for the follow-up. Uh, you have to emphasize to them, we really have to follow you up very closely, particularly for the first year. Um, after that, we may relax the monitoring, but the, the confidence of the patient and the physician that uh, is able to communicate freely and with, with knowledge of the, the topic is absolutely essential. So we're coming to the end of the podcast. Uh, do you have any additional advice you'd like to give physicians and other healthcare practitioners caring for these patients? Oh, well, I always love to give advice. <laughs> uh, the first thing I, I would like to tell my colleagues is that let's accept that testosterone deficiency is a, is a true clinical entity and that men suffering from testosterone deficiency also have uh, problems with the quality of life. And there is evidence that has appeared in the literature that it also uh, affects uh, survival. These people with low testosterone seem to have a shorter uh, survival. I would like to reiterate the importance of the clinical findings and the laboratory diagnosis. The, the treatment should not be based purely on a clinical impression, and there is a good number of studies showing that many patients are being treated on the basis of just the history and the physical without laboratory confirmation, and I think this is a mistake. Frequently, the physician may find a picture that is not supported by the laboratory test. Patient has many of the manifestations of testosterone deficiency, and the testosterone is borderline or just above the normal uh, limits in their specific lab. And the same may apply to men in whom an adequate treatment of testosterone doesn't seem to produce any benefits. When in doubt, always consider, well, I'm going to refer this to somebody who has more experience and is more involved. And the final piece of advice is the importance of monitoring. I think it's particularly important in the first year, 
And if the patient is not going to participate actively in this monitoring, it's better not to consider him for treatment. Well, Dr. Morales, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about this guideline. I think it'll be a really, really useful resource for our listeners. It has been a pleasure. I've been speaking with Dr. Alvaro Morales, a urologist and professor emeritus at Queen's University School of Medicine. To read the full guideline on managing testosterone deficiency syndrome in men, visit cmaj.ca.